0: My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast? The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you can hear the sound of my voice, it means you are still alive and it is my continued mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? I'm your host, Kate Courtley, and I am ecstatic about having another incredible out-of-this-world guest today. I'm going to have to read this. Buckle up for this intro, folks. Our next guest is an emergency physician in the U.S. Army with subspecialty certification in primary care sports medicine. He's a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. Prior to his selection of NASA's 21st group of astronauts in 2013, he served in elite special operations units worldwide. Most recently, he served as flight engineer on the International Space Station for Expedition 60, 61, and 62. I guess two wasn't enough. And that's basically nine months in space, folks, during which he conducted seven spacewalks totaling 45 hours and 48 minutes. His flight spanned a total of 4,352 Earth orbits a journey of over 115.3 million miles. Please welcome Dr. Andrew Richard Morgan. Drew, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cade. Glad to be here. I uh, Wow, I totally didn't study enough in school. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, it's incredible. I've always wanted to know what it felt like being strapped to the top of a rocket moments before and during liftoff try, if you can, try and describe that to us.
1: Well, I mean, I would tell you, first of all, overall, we're very calm because the training is so excellent. You know, it's impossible to reproduce that moment if you haven't experienced it, but we try to do it in little pieces and parts through really high fidelity simulations and We've trained in high-performance jets. we've been in centrifuges. We have gone through the process of launch and landing many times inside a simulator I launched on a Russian vehicle called the Soyuz, a very reliable vehicle that's been around for decades, uh, more than 50 years. So the whole process is, first of all, I have a lot of respect for it, because it has been around you know, it's probably very similar to the way that Yuri Gagarin walked out to his rocket and climbed up that ladder so many years ago, almost 60 years ago, and we did much the same. Climbed that ladder, took a little elevator, got stuffed into our capsule. That capsule is tight. It is very, very cramped with three people in it in a seat that is actually molded to our backside, custom molded, built just for us. So there's no margin for wiggling around once you're strapped in. And we're strapped in for about two, two and a half hours or so before launch. And the launch is, you know, I, I never have, fly, I did not fly on the space shuttle, but for my colleagues who have flown both on the space shuttle and on the Soyuz, and now we have astronauts even that have launched on Crew Dragon as mm-hmm. just in the last couple of months, they would say that the ride up on the Soyuz is is actually very smooth. And, and that's what I found. You feel that acceleration into your chest and as each stage burns, you feel the acceleration and that the build of those g-forces in your chest greater and greater. We f- experience about three and a half g's or so on the way up. So not terrible, but enough to you know make you quite aware that you're accelerating to quite a speed. And then after that third stage cuts off instantaneously, you feel like you're upside down in your straps. So that the moment that's the moment that you when the engine shuts down, you are fully in orbit and you experience microgravity for the first time. And it was described to me beforehand and then very much consistent with what I experienced. It feels like you're hanging upside down all of a sudden because all that you've been feeling, the force of the acceleration build and push you down into your seat. And then all of a sudden that's gone. And now it feels like you're upside down hanging. And I felt like that for a day or so, even after arriving on the ISS of just the sensation of like, I'm upside down, but I'm not even though my visually everything looks like it's Correct. It just something isn't quite right.
0: Oh, that's wild. You know, you said that, mentioned Yuri Gagarin. I've always been fascinated by the beginning of the space race. And I, the first book I ever read was The Right Stuff and the Mercury 7 astronauts. And, you know, we've obviously come a long way, but can you compare and contrast maybe some similarities between those first seven Mercury 7 astronauts? I mean, all of whom came from test flight backgrounds. And, Our modern day astronauts and and just what you guys have gone through. I, I know miles of difference, technology, education, you name it, but I don't know, are there any similarities?
1: Well, I mean, there are a lot of similarities and there are some differences for sure. First of all, going back to that era, an era where that was, it was very competitive. We were competing against the Soviets and a race to be first. And then you contrast that with now. Here I was sitting in a rocket that essentially represented the engineering pinnacle of the, the Soviet Union, and I'm sitting next to a Russian and an Italian on the top of that rocket. The contrast of cooperation from competition to cooperation wasn't lost on us. And crews, we constantly revisit that. It's one of the most incredible things about the International Space Station Program and where we are, that it maintains this relationship across borders, multiple, but you know, in particular with our Russian colleagues. And I really enjoyed the rich aspect of being immersed in Russian culture and the language and learning their vehicle and learning how they do things, but also my cosmonaut colleagues coming to the United States and experiencing the same here. And then we launched together and then we live on the ISS together for months on end. And you know, our relationship is really great up there. And it was my pleasure in those not just my, in my American crewmates and my European crewmates. I also had an Emirati crewmate from the United Arab Emirates, the first ever Hazza Al Mansouri, and my Russian cosmonaut colleagues. I mean, we are we're friends for life as a result of that. It was really a great experience.
0: If you could hop in a time machine and go back to that early day, of this would you volunteer to try and be one of those Mercury Seven?
1: Well, you know, it's hard to put myself in that place because, sure. like, one of the similarities I will tell you that we have then to now is that. You mentioned that those first seven and most of the Apollo astronauts were fighter pilots, test pilots, and test pilots in general are still, you know, that's a common profession that to feed into the astronaut corps still is. You know, I come from a medical background, which is also a well represented profession in uh, in the astronaut corps as well, but it wasn't at the very, very beginning. You know, it was several classes of astronaut selections before we selected our first physicians. So it's hard for me to put myself in that mindset because they were going into the unknown, truly into the unknown. When I launched into space, I was doing something now. We've got the hang of this, you right. know, that we've been occupying the International Space Station with astronauts continuously for 20 years now. And the ISS itself has been up there for greater than 20 years. The construction began back in 1998. And it's this engineering marvel that we've continued to improve on. All of our operational techniques and how we get astronauts to and from the space station, we've perfected this now. And so what I experienced compared to what the Mercury 7 experienced, yes, there's a heritage there, but my hat's off to the boldness that those guys had Alan Shepard, Yuri Gagarin, for being the the first in each of their respective vehicles to be launched into space and then return to Earth and be the first to have done that.
0: Well, just so much of the unknown at that point, too. It's like, we don't know if you're going to be able to swallow and, and right. the impact it's going to have on your body. It's Yeah, it's some crazy bravery throughout the entire program, though. Was there an event, an individual or something that happened to you that you it just said, "I'm going to go into space." Can you put your finger on something?
1: Yeah, there. I would say there are two extremes of of astronaut. There's those that knew that's all, what they always wanted to be, and then some that decided very late in life, and then a- everywhere in between. And I would say I was somewhere in between. You know, I grew up in the era of. The space shuttle launching every couple of months i mean it was you know i, I think i was in kindergarten first grade when the first space shuttle launched and i remember those were my vivid memories of space shuttles launching and landing and the coverage that those got on television i lived my father was an air force officer we moved around a lot and there were a couple touch points i had along the way living in texas and in california saw space shuttle land saw uh, space shuttle transit on the back of the 747 yep. from california to to Florida and, and land in Texas. So I had seen it in real life. Uh, it wasn't until adulthood that I actually saw an actual launch myself. So I had those touch points and those were very inspirational to me as I was growing up. I always looked to astronauts as that was the revered hero. I thought that's very cool, but I also say that I'm very realistic. and very pragmatic. I knew that was a long shot. You know, I, my career played out like I followed the things that I was immediately interested in. I was interested in the military. I was interested in medicine. I pursued those. I pursued those with all of my heart and passion, became the best at those. And the back of my mind, always remembering that I was inspired by astronauts and and thought space exploration is cool. And I like being part of really high performing teams. Maybe I should... point, at least give it a shot, Think believing that I had no shot in the world because there had not been an astronaut selected like me, you know, like an army special operations doctor. That just wasn't the mold. That wasn't the test pilot, fighter pilot that you typically see get selected as an astronaut. And the, the physicians that had been selected, you know, some had, had already had NASA backgrounds or they had air force or Navy backgrounds, but nothing that looked exactly like me. So I had no expectation that I would be selected or that I would even be a consideration. But I thought, you know, I'm not going to be satisfied unless I at least give it a shot. And around 2011, which was not long after the last space shuttle launched, NASA announced that they were going to select another class, which was a surprise to me because when the space shuttle retired, a lot of us, a lot wow. of Americans, thought, well, <laughs> what is the future of yeah. our, our space program? But you know, the reality is uh, that NASA has been, we've been continuously putting astronauts in space for 20 years now, and we, there's been an American presence on the ISS. Even though there was not a space shuttle launching and landing, we were still putting them up there on the Soyuz. And I, you know, I didn't quite understand that 10 years ago, but I would, when they announced that they were going to select another class, I was like, this is it. This is the right time in my career. And I applied and I started making cuts along the way. It's a long process. It's like 18 months or so. And I was shocked every time I was selected to the next round.
0: I wanted to ask you about your time in the military, the Army, especially special operations that had to help you out when you're going through the astronaut program. It's so specifically, I mean, you already said you thought it was a long shot, but you don't get into special operations without having a never quit attitude.
1: Yeah. I mentioned that one of the things that drew me to the uh, to being an astronaut was being part of this really high functioning team really great group of people and that was the that was the same thing that drew me into special operations and if you had asked me back when i was a a cadet at west point you think you're going to be an astronaut one day i'd be like "Mm, maybe but if you would ask me are you going to be a doctor in special forces i would have been like yeah that's (laughs) what i want to do i know i had the dream job that went before i was selected and One of those things was being part of these really just, I loved being a part of that camaraderie. I know you understand that.
0: Absolutely. I miss it.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's a common sentiment among operators that leave those communities. And, you know, I touched it in a different way. I don't pretend that I was an operator. I was definitely in a support role as as a physician, but I really took pride in the fact that I did a lot of the high-risk training alongside of them, deployed with them, walked on the ground on patrols in combat zones with them that gave me a credibility with my patients, my patient population that allowed me to communicate with them that I wouldn't have otherwise been. They, they trusted me, they confided in me. It allowed me to work with them through some really tough problems to make sure so that they knew that my job was, I wanted them to stay in the fight and that Mm -hmm. I wanted to be alongside of them. And I didn't want, you know, my job, I wasn't like, Kind of like the classic uh, flight surgeon and a fighter squadron, kind of just looking for a reason to uh, to down a guy. No, I wanted I wanted you to be, a, and certainly we had a little longer leash in special operations in terms yeah. of what I could allow them to do. But we did, you know, between diving and military freefall jumping and and things, there were a lot of really critical decisions to make about guys' ability, their fitness for that. And I wanted to be somebody that they could trust in any circumstance. And as a result, I made a lot of real lifelong friendships yep. with some really great elite soldiers from all over the military, well, all I, branches. Doc, really. I,
0: I can promise you, we don't get anywhere near doing our jobs without you guys. It doesn't happen. It's a total team effort, whether you're chewing on bullets or not. It just, so thank you for doing that and do not in any way downgrade your involvement and in, and in your part of the mission success. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Jump out of planes. You've been doing that for a while, I understand.
1: Well, I started as a cadet at West Point. I was on the parachute team there. And, uh, you know, as it it turns out, it does selects for a certain mindset because there are two other astronauts in the astronaut corps right now, Well, three three other astronauts that were on Service Academy parachute teams uh, when when they were cadets. But that was my introduction to it. And that was when I showed up at West Point. That was one of those things that I had seen in the brochure. And I was like, oh, I, I want to be a part of that. And-
0: like the gold, the Golden Knights, right? The second best parachute team in the military next to the Leapfrogs, I understand. <laughs> right, you know exactly. there's going to be a little yeah. inner service rivalry coming out of this interview. <laughs> so I got it out of my system. Right. Yes,
1: right, right, exactly. <laughs> so I, when I was a cadet, I knew that was something I wanted to be a part of. And when I got selected onto that team, those nine other classmates on the team that I had. Those guys, they're still my best friends in the world. And um, that was my first experience with what it was like to be on a team where you, first of all, are subordinate yourself to the good of the team. And also you're doing things on a daily basis, on a daily basis where your life is at risk and you're relying on them to do your jump master pre-inspection before you get in the aircraft and to jump master for you, or whether you're doing formation, skydiving, relative work in the air during free fall. That was my first exposure to what that was like. That laid the groundwork for the rest of my life. And that experience was one of the most valuable aspects of my my time as a cadet.
0: Does NASA still let you jump out of planes on purpose? I
1: haven't jumped, and if I went back and looked at my logbook, it's probably been six or seven years, which would correspond with about the time that I was I was yeah. selected. So I haven't. I don't. You know, we we do restrict it as you get closer to. If you're assigned to a flight and you're going to fly, then of course we want to. When reduced in amount of high risk activity leading up to the flight, but I suppose uh, I could absolutely go out here in the next couple of weeks. But I haven't had a strong desire to. But I think I have definitely not made my last jump. I'll say that. Oh,
0: that's good. (laughs) Maybe I can join you. I would love (laughs) to hear a little bit about that. So you were part of a 21st group nicknamed the Eight Balls. Talk to me a little bit about how you got that name, number one, and just astronaut basic training. Maybe how it compared to some of the stuff you did in the military. How it was different, probably different attitude a little bit. I don't know. I'd be I'm curious to know.
1: Well, the training was lasted about two years. And so the, kind of the fundamentals of astronaut candidate training. So we go, we're called astronaut candidates or ASCANS for short for the first, uh, first two years. And then on the other end of that is kind of when we're finally given the moniker, like we're a fully qualified astronaut eligible for flight assignment, eligible to go to the ISS, which is right. you know, at the time that I was assigned, that was that was the program, the ISS program. So it starts very early on with Russian language training, hours and hours a week. And we have to achieve a certain proficiency level in those two years in order to say that we're qualified to was, fly.
0: Was and, that with the Defense Language Institution or was that something that NASA did on their own, basically?
1: It is a NASA internal um, okay. immersion. It's like a, it, it's not, not an immersion, but a, it's a one-on-one instruction. And I would say we averaged about somewhere between... During those early years, somewhere between six and eight hours a week, and that really adds up over time, and we get really good. The one-on-one instruction aspect of it really accelerates things quite a bit, but we're motivated because we have to get to that certain level, because by international agreement, the languages spoken on the ISS are Russian and English, and that doesn't matter what your native tongue is. So my Italian crewmate, Luca Parmitano, had to learn, I mean, he was already a, a fluent English speaker, but if for some reason he hadn't been, he was still going to have to learn English and he was still going to have to learn Russian. And you only speak Russian or English up there, regardless of of your native tongue. So motivated to get to that proficiency level. We learn about robotics and we learn about the ISS systems, all of the, you know, the thermal control system, the electronic, the electrical power system, all those things, you know, take time, of course, to learn about them. We learn about emergency procedures. And then there are uh, two other really interesting aspects of our training of course are the spacewalk training the EVA extravehicular activity and then we also spend a fair amount of time also on expeditionary skills and those are those are the soft skills the team skills of building how to be a good team player a good team leader good team member and we do that in a variety of different ways but during those early years we do that by going on expeditions, like through outdoor leadership.
0: Yeah. And that's, I wanted to ask you specifically, because that's sort of the key of the show we're doing, but any of the specific survival training that you had to go through and, and that was probably integrated into that team building stuff. I had imagine. you know, other than, other than the basic don't screw up in outer space, what did, what was some of the stuff they put you through as far as survival things?
1: A lot of us, because we had military backgrounds already had some baseline exposure to SEER schools of different types But then we actually go through just the survival part of a, it's kind of a a catered to us program that the Navy, you know, like the Navy runs up in Maine. Um, One of the first, actually, now that I think about it, that was the first thing that we did Mm -hmm. when I was selected in 2013 is we made a trip up to Maine for that course to learn some basic survival skills. And then when we get assigned to our specific vehicle, once I had finished candidate training and I was assigned to fly on Soyuz, then we get some survival training related to how to winter survival in Russia, how to survive in the event of a, a winter landing, you know, a, a off nominal landing somewhere where we didn't expect to land. Right. And then also water survival, if in case, you know, that we intend for that capsule to land on land in Kazakhstan. But, you know, if it was to land in a body of water, whether that be a lake, a sea, or, or, or an ocean, it's equipped for that as well. And so there's a lot of nuanced equipment and, like I mentioned, very tight space. So donning flotation equipment and gear to protect you from the cold water and all that is, it, that is an exercise that takes a lot of practice and, and how to suit up inside the three of you inside that before you jump out of the capsule.
0: What was the ratio in your class of prior or current military to civilian? And did it take a little bit of blending of the personalities before, okay, we're all on the same team now, or how did that sort out?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So my class of eight, there were four men, four women, and I think six of the eight of us had military backgrounds. So the majority of us did. Mm-hmm. I think that the way that it was described to us, most people that come to NASA If you come from a military background, NASA seems very civilian, but if you come from a civilian background, it seems very military, because there's definitely a, you know, after generations of greater than 50 years in the astronaut corps, with a very heavy military influence, and not just that, there's, I would say that the Navy and the Air Force have definitely spoken into the the culture much more, because during the shuttle era, they definitely made up the majority of the astronaut corps, Whereas now that's balanced out a little bit more as we've gotten into the era of ISS and long duration space flight, army officers are represented in a greater proportion than they had been in the past. But there is definitely a military flavor to the culture for sure, from generations of exposure to military astronauts.
0: Well, do a little bit more on different backgrounds and personalities. When you're spending nine months at the ISS, Does NASA consciously say, okay, we got a feeling that there are certain personalities that will probably work better than others, so we're going to try and pair certain individuals up for these long duration? Is that part of the equation? They think about everything. I think that's one of the checklist items.
1: I know that it does enter in to some degree. We place a premium on that skill set that I've already kind of labeled as expeditionary behavior and those skills, those team skills that we use when we live in these enclosed environments for a long period of time. I think that as we look forward to more and even longer duration missions to the moon and to Mars, that factor is going to become an even greater consideration as we go forward. I would say that Most crews that I have seen come back from long duration missions, the ISS, and they debrief talk about the importance of that as if not equal to technical skill, even greater. Because that day-to-day living, you are literally around each other all the time, whether you are doing your personal hygiene, whether you're eating, whether you're sleeping, you sleep just feet away from each other. The population on the ISS, most of the time, we typically keep about six crew members on board. There were times when I was on board when we had as many as nine for a short period of time. But it's enough to remind you that the place is not built for nine people for a long period of time. And then there were periods of time where we had as few as three. Like right now, the crew on board is three. And for my last two and a half months on board, the crew was only three. And that those changes, those shifts in crew composition and crew size and all those things it's amazing how now having experienced different combinations of crew sizes and, and personalities, how the sense on board, the, the culture on board shifts rapidly with that. But I think that we do a really good job of selecting people who are adaptable to changing situations. Ideally, we're selecting people who are, are have an element of selflessness, that understand of subordinating your personal needs to that of the crew or the team. It's been an important emphasis Especially in the classes that my class, the class that was selected after me, the class that was selected before me were selected knowing that the only show in town was going to be long duration space flights. So that forces you to focus on a certain type of personality type that is different than when we were flying space shuttle missions that lasted a week or two.
0: Well, I mean, that's interesting, Drew, because I got a chance to interview your fellow astronaut, Jessica Meir, and she said, Morgan was a huge pain in the ass until he had his coffee. So I, I'm not quite sure how that equated, but that's all right. We'll get past that. No, yeah. I, I'm Justin, I'm certain just sure, sure she didn't say that
1: exactly, <laughs> but I am drinking coffee just in case that's partially true.
0: No, she had only the best things to say about everybody she got the chance to work with up there. And it just shows well, how,
1: Jessica and I, we were in select, well, I, out of my eight ball class, I flew with three other of my classmates and that's fairly unusual. Usually. You get a mix enough and experience. It, they try to mix the experience in cruise enough that you don't typically fly with multiple or a classmate, let alone multiple. And Jessica is an example of somebody I've trained with for seven plus years now. I know her very well. She's like a sister to me. And we got along very well. Now, she came up just a little bit after me, right. but, but we ended up going home together. So I lived within five feet of her for seven months. So... Whatever she says is true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well played. <laughs> you were talking about earlier. I mean, the space station has been manned for over 20 years. It began construction even earlier than that. Obviously, maintenance is incredibly important, making sure everything's working and it needs to work. Maybe half of the spacewalks you guys do is a maintenance operation on the ISS since we are a survival podcast. Can you give me an example of the worst case scenario that would happen while you're up there, and what would cause an emergency evac, and how that would go?
1: So there are several scenarios that we train specifically for, and our caution and warning panel on the ISS, the you know the the panel that that tells us something is bad is going on. It it has cautions, it has warnings that will just generically light up for a, any number of things, but those are things that we're we're interested in but they don't require immediate action per se because we have this robust team on the ground that's watching all these things and they'll call up if they need us to do something specific but there are three emergency lights on there that we hope don't ever light up fire because you can imagine fire in an enclosed space is a real problem you know that that obviously just like on a ship because I, I know not only were you were your SEAL, but I understand you were also a SWO at one point, right?
0: I was first year of surface warfare officer, so, and yeah, then yeah, I, so found, you know. I found a better life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I know that you have great respect, though, for what fire control is in an enclosed space Absolutely. as a result of that experience. It's the same thing on the ISS. Fire is a, a big deal. And so we train for that scenario specifically. The other is toxic atmosphere, because it is an industrial environment, and there are lots of hazardous chemicals that, are, that could potentially spill. One of the coolants on that we use in the exterior of the space station is ammonia. There is a theoretical possibility that, that could get inside the cabin, and not to mention all the other chemicals that are just used as a result of science experience inside the cabin. These are all things that we want to make sure that if they did get exposed to the cabin, that we'd have a way to contain them and respond to them in a methodical way. So toxic atmosphere is a second. And then the last one is depressurization. So it is a, it's a rigid balloon we're living in, and there is space debris, and there is the potential that, one, that the ISS could impact a small piece of debris that would poke a hole in the in hull the and leak atmosphere, and that would be a problem as well. And so that's something that we also train for, how to isolate where a leak is and how to plug that, that hole if we need to. And then there's also of interest to me, as well as a physician, the the possibility of medical emergencies of all types. The way that we deal with that, I I typically describe that as a kind of a three-pronged approach. First of all, we like to make sure that our population that we're sending up there, the crew, are healthy, pre-screened, so we prevent upfront. Then the next part of the approach is we have robust telemedicine capability that we can talk to the ground by a variety of different means, with or without video, voice only. We have medications and equipment, pre of course, on board. And then there's a crew member on board that's always trained to be the crew medical officer that may or may not be a physician. That could easily be any crew member that speaks to how we are trained one and the same, regardless of what our backgrounds are. And then in the most extreme scenario, if we did have to evacuate somebody for a life-threatening or eyesight threatening injury of some sort, we can evacuate somebody off the crew because our our vehicles are are always docked to the space station. The downside of that is you couldn't just send a patient home, you'd have to send the entire crew that would came up in that vehicle home. And so luckily, yeah, we have not encountered that. Well- uh,
0: If, again, the worst case scenario, okay, we all need to get out now. What kind of time frame have you trained for? Or like, we got to be out of here in two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, situational dependent, obviously, like, hey, we only have two minutes. What was the training like on on an emergency evac for all personnel? Yeah,
1: we do. We train for that specifically. And our general approach, like I'll give you an example on depressurization scenario And that what we're trying to do is, is buy time. And as we close off segments of the ISS, we're constantly recalculating how much time do we have left? Because we know when our air, our oxygen supply is going to become too low to, you know, where it's going to become dangerous for us. And we just need to be like, okay, we're not looking anymore. We're getting into our vehicles and we're, we're going home. Of course, on the Extreme, one of the first things we check if we ever encountered a scenario like this, make sure that the vehicle we want to go home in is not the problem. So, that of course is high on the priority list. But when in Russia, because I flew on a Russian vehicle, we trained for the scenario of of like, okay, you've identified what the emergency is. Maybe you have an emergency mask on because it's a, a fire or a toxic atmosphere. And how do we go through the process of taking off that mask, putting on our suit in a safe way? in a cramped space, be prepared to undock unexpectedly and go through that whole process. We do that multiple times in Russia. It's one of the most grueling evolutions that we have in training is going through just, you know, I'm sure you've worn a chemical mask before and know what the what
0: Yeah, it's that's really like. fun when it's 120 degrees out too.
1: Yeah, and it's never that hot in Russia, but it's, <laughs> it seems to be just as, as miserable though. Yeah,
0: it is. <laughs> you've chosen a career that's very hazardous and you've operated in arguably the most hazardous environment in the universe. And without getting too dark, I love picking into the brain of somebody who's made this choice about your feelings about fear and death. And I know when you're busy and into training and we've got a job to do, there's not room for fear, but it's something that's part of everything. And death is ultimately something that can happen even if you're doing something you love do you have a philosophy on either one of those things
1: yes i as i alluded to before where you know i know that i'm not doing something for the first time you know this wasn't a first this is something we have tread and retread and i know that there has been there are thousands of the greatest minds on the planet all over at mission control centers all around the world that are constantly thinking about mitigating risk for us and so that gives me a huge amount of confidence partaking in something like this but it, you know that's something my wife and I you know I'm married I've been married for 20 years I got four kids I have a lot at home that I you know I want to come back to and that was a stated priority before I went on this mission my, my number one priority is to come home safely to my wife and kids and that was you know end of story my wife and, and my. Family are conditioned to the fact, for, as a result, you know, my military career, my experiences deploying, and the training that I had done, and uh, that led up to this point. They understand what that is, and they understand what that means to me and what us. My wife helps cultivate a culture in my my family and my kids that this is, you know, this is a noble calling. Yes, my life is in danger. We believe that that risk is well calculated, and but in the end, that if I were to face death. We'd be okay with that. Um, I know my family would be okay. It would it'd be a hell of a view for the last last look, so to speak. Yeah, it would, it would be the view that I, I'd like to have, and yeah. uh, as my final view. And I know that my life would go on from my wife and kids, and they'd be they'd be well taken care of.
0: I Get it? Speaking of a hell of a view, why is it so important? We get back to the moon by twenty twenty four, and are you going to be able to step foot on that thing?
1: Well, I mean, the moon is our our closest neighbor, and there's a lot that I think that's going to tell us about planet Earth and there are a couple of things from the ISS program that I think that we'll be able to take forward with us to the moon. One of those aspects, which I'd already touched on, the importance of the international partnership. And that's a, a distinct difference from the way that we approached Apollo, that whole evolution from competition to
0: cooperation. Boy, wouldn't that be nice on a global level?
1: Yeah. I mean, and these things are these are important symbols yeah. to all of humanity. And so that's gonna be a unique aspect of of the Artemis program when we go to return. And then Apollo missions were very short in duration. We landed on the surface of the moon six different times. They were very quick and kind of limited in scope. Now, if we go back in a sustainable way for an enduring presence, the robustness of the science that we'll be able to do, we'll be able to replicate something like the ISS, where we have, we're at the point where the ISS is built and been up there for two decades and is now an orbiting laboratory. And we'll be able to reproduce that in cis-lunar orbit and on the surface of, of the moon. So these are exciting times and all the ingredients are there for us to to make that happen.
0: Well, I spoke with Jessica Muir about this and then I basically said, is the moon training camp for Mars? And she said, good way to put it. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know the value as an operator, you know the importance of rehearsal oh, yeah. and making the leap straight from low earth orbit the way we've been doing it around the ISS all the way to Mars, there's a lot of in between, and wouldn't it be nice to take this on a smaller scale and go through those operational processes of actually getting around? Yeah, I get the moon is not as far away as Mars, but we're so operationally we need to think about how do we get around a planetary body separate from Earth? How do we get down to the surface of it and then off the surface of it? How do we deal with things like, you know, you know, the one thing that we've never had to deal with on the ISS is moon dust, lunar regolith, those types of things. It's, it's just going to introduce all kinds of new thought processes that we haven't had to think about in low Earth orbit. And so this is our opportunity to rehearse, Rangers rehearse, and that's our full dress rehearsal there.
0: Well, I know budget is a huge concern with space traveling with NASA, and I had a great idea maybe you could. Forward this on, but we could take the ISS and land it on the moon, and we're set to start in like a year, right?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean it's it's a good thought. It's a good I'll, yeah. I'll write it on. That's a uh, that's my four years of college, hard at work, right there for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I warned you, and we do something in this show called hypothetical survival world. Now we put one of your counterparts through this. She she did pretty well. I can't tell you how well. But in hypothetical survival world, Drew, I'm going to drop you into a hypothetical situation where you will be in a life-threatening environment, and you have to choose over a period of 10 events whether you choose A or B, just like to choose your own adventure books. And you will get plus 10 points for choosing the right one, minus 10 for choosing the wrong one, because of your education and your experience, I am open to your arguments if you think you've chosen the right one. And we okay. can talk about that. So if you have any questions about the game, I will throw you right into your scenario.
1: And the only passing score is 100%? 100% is perfect.
0: That's, that, a, that's a perfect the only score. Way to survive? No, the only it's way not. Survive no, 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 oh, no. Okay. Right. There's different degrees of surviving. Like maybe you survived, but you lost an arm or something like that. But 100%. Nailed it. All right? Okay. So if you're ready, here we go. Okay, Drew. You're finishing up a training flight in your T-38 outside of Houston when you see an incredibly bright light to the north. Okay? All right. You realize what this is. There has been a 10 kiloton nuclear blast north of downtown Houston, approximately 30 miles away. Any questions so far about your scenario before I hit you with the first choice? I'm not in the T-38 anymore, am I? (laughs) You're in the T-38 when you see this, but here is your first decision. Okay. 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 30 miles to the north of you, in a T-38, do you head to the south full throttle, or do you immediately try and do an emergency landing on a nearby highway? 30 miles. 30 miles away from us? 30 miles away, nuclear blast. You just saw the light. You know what's coming next.
1: Boy, I don't know that I could do the
0: math calculation to figure out how fast we can travel away. I can help you. I can help you, but go with your instincts here.
1: Yeah, I think we need to get on the
0: ground. Absolutely. Because there's
1: very little about a nuclear detonation that I think that. What T- would
0: be max yeah. max speed on a T-38 roughly?
1: We can be supersonic, but not for very long. And that's the the thing that anybody that's flown a T-38 knows that it doesn't have long legs. Okay. Not a lot of fuel and. So we wouldn't get, too f- wouldn't get very far.
0: You might have been able to. So I did the math ahead of time again because, well, you're an astronaut and I had too much fun in college. So a blast wave is coming immediately following that bright light. They travel at roughly the speed of sound. So let's call it 740 miles per hour for easy math. You're yeah. 30 miles away. At that speed, you have about two minutes. So if you could get to supersonic and maintain it for greater than two, two and a half minutes you might be able to but i think your instincts are let's get this thing on the ground as soon as possible yeah so congratulations you're already plus 10 out of the gate you managed to get this thing down you get out of it are you going to run to a nearby gas station or are you going to get into a ditch
1: oh i'm gonna get into a ditch
0: oh hell yeah why would you get into a ditch vice a gas station
1: Oh, i don't want to be uh above ground level if i can't if i can avoid it
0: yeah absolutely and you just got out of something that's potentially explosive in that t-38 why do you want to go run into something else that's full of fuel so yeah absolutely yeah. all right so you find yourself in this ditch the blast wave is coming do you curl up in a ball or do you lay on your stomach
1: so i'm in the ditch yeah, yeah i'm gonna lay on my stomach probably face down, cover my head. Exactly. A lower cross
0: section, obviously, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and another thing we learned going through SEAL training because we had to deal with a lot of training when you're nearby a major explosion is you keep your mouth open and you cover your ears so any of those, as you know as a doctor, anything that holds air isn't going to blow up like a balloon. You're already at an easy plus 30, which is exactly where Miss Muir was at this point. So it's head to head for the two astronauts all, right. all right last wave goes over you do you stay in the ditch or do you get up and get away from that gas station which is just to the right of you this is a softball so i i mean
1: at some fallout becomes a consideration here so is this like a covered gas station
0: no no but it's uh it's right next to you and stuff's flying around and you can see yeah,
1: so i so the blast wave is, has passed, and this is just a it's a structure yeah. of some sort, right?
0: Not anymore, it's not. <laughs> but okay. it was a gas station, and we know what those things have.
1: Last stay in the ditch.
0: Well, what I would recommend is getting away from what is potentially going to be an after-the-fact issue with fuel and damage and heat and exploding This is really significant if you find yourself taking shelter maybe next to a large building. I always say once you stop hearing objects impacting, you want to get three times away from the maximum height. Because these things are all going to start tumbling down. Given the fact this is a gas station and it didn't go up necessarily, vice what you'd want to do with a building. I'm going to call it an even on that one. Not a plus, but not a minus. Okay. No, it's it's a fair one. All right. So you look around, and what do you see in the distance? Just like you were talking about, you see a large mushroom cloud. You also remember, from the fact that you were just flying, heavy, heavy southern winds. Mushroom cloud is north of you. Fallout is probably about 45 minutes away. So you look around, get out of the ditch. To the left, a brand new SUV. To the right, an old ranch pickup. Which one are you going to try and get in and get out of there in?
1: I'm going to get in the old pickup. I don't want anything with microchips in it.
0: Absolutely. So we touched on the EMP. What happens, folks, is when you have a nuclear blast like this, modern electronics, generally speaking, especially if running, are fried. Old school ranch truck, heavy steel frame and body. It's going to help you out down the road as well. So, boom. Plus forty. Here we go. So again, fallout to the north heading towards you. Do you drive directly south away from the fallout or do you go east or west?
1: So I think what it was, stay tangent to it. Perpendicular? Yeah. Which uh, So you said it's north and
0: yep. my so option is... Here's the fallout. Imagine a river of fallout. Are yeah. you going to run away from the river or are you going to go perpendicular east or west?
1: I will go perpendicular east or west.
0: Absolutely. Drive to the left or the right of it. The thing will catch up with you. It's just going to be a matter of time. Get perpendicular away from it. Plus 50. All right. Here we go, Doc. Keep going here. All right. You're 20 minutes into this drive away. And, of course, gridlock. Not going anywhere. People are freaking out. You have to get out of this old truck that took good care of you. And are you going to try and seek shelter or are you just going to keep running in that perpendicular direction? 20 minutes until the fallout hits you.
1: What type of shelter is available?
0: We'll get to that. But you either have to make up a mindset of, yeah, I'm going for shelter, or I'm just going to keep running in this perpendicular direction and try and get out of the fallout.
1: I mean, relatively cover very, you know, 20 minutes, not going to cover maybe much more than a mile. You can so, run
0: better than a 20-minute mile. Come on, you are in the Army. Okay, okay. <laughs> three true. miles. Let's go three miles. I'm thinking about rucksack. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you're doing sub-sevens right now because you see a fallout <laughs> coming your way.
1: Okay, so that's a three additional miles in that same direction versus uh seat shelter? Yep. What shelter is available?
0: We'll get to that if you decide to choose that option. Okay, well, I, I just, choose that often. Yeah, that's smart. I smart. Sh- I showed my cards on that one. Absolutely, <laughs> look, folks. Yeah, you might run a little bit more and increase, but you just had a ten kiloton nuclear explosion with enormous mushroom cloud. It's time to seek shelter. So here is your options for shelter. Now think about everything you can remember in school about a nuclear explosion, and this will help you out. Blast wave has already gone on. To the right, a wood framed warehouse. To the left, a 10-story brick building. But the brick building is about a half a block further. Closest wood-framed warehouse or a little further, a 10-story brick building.
1: So this is basically a question about shielding. Which shield's better? Maybe. So wood, I don't know why wood would be a better shield than brick, but you have to run further to the brick. I'm going to go with Brick.
0: Absolutely going with Brick. And you nailed it with the shielding. Folks, the next thing you're worried about, other than the fallout that's coming down on you, Alpha, Beta, and Gamma Rays and their ability to penetrate and how that's going to create a worse situation with radiation sickness, et cetera. So you make it to this 10-story brick building. You get inside. Do you A, start gathering supplies, or B, strip off the outer layer of your clothes?
1: Uh, Definitely got to get out the... Get rid of the clothing.
0: And explain that as a doctor, why you want to do that.
1: Radioactive material that is already deposited on it, you could get rid of probably, I don't know, I don't know what the figure would say, 75, 85, 75 to 85% just by getting rid of the outer layer of clothing.
0: That's exactly right, Drew. And specific best way to do this is you want to pull it down and away, not up and over your face, nose, mouth, eyes, ears, all that stuff that would love to absorb that. So down and away okay so here we go this is for bragging rights ready <laughs> one left you're in this brick building do you head to the basement or do you climb up don't have great rationale
1: but it just seems like now I, okay so the building is at, this building has already survived the blast wave so it's tenuous at best but it is still standing But I just feel like being underground and out of the way seems like a better place than being way high up on a building. So I'm going to go with the basement.
0: Absolutely. Plus 90 points. And you already talked about the shielding. If you go down, not only are you going to have the foundation, but you're going to have Mother Earth helping you shield. You go up, windows, fallout, alpha, beta, gamma, all coming through, penetrating. Drew, plus 90. You more than survived a nuclear blast. You survived a landing during a nuclear blast. That's got to be a first yeah. somewhere, all right? <laughs> Gus Grissom's got nothing on you for that one. <laughs> so uh, congratulations, plus 90. Oh, this is going to break your heart, though. Jess Kamir got 100.
1: That's it. It's a surprise me one bit. It I'm sorry. Bit.
0: I'm sorry, but I threw zombies <laughs> at her, so she earned it with the zombies. So I would call it an even score with you guys. We do something here, and you're very familiar with this being in in the military and AAR and after action review. Anything that you picked up during our time together, you're like, oh, yeah, never thought about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I guess it never really occurred to me that the uh, LeapFrogs were a parachute team that was even remotely in the ballpark with the Golden Knights and the Black Knights.
0: (laughs) Well played. Well played. Hey, Drew Morgan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for what you do for our country. Hey,
1: it was great talking to you. It was a lot of fun. And I uh, recommend that you chat with some of our uh, SEAL astronauts, Johnny Kim and Chris Cassidy, both good friends of mine. So it's been a lot of fun to talk with you. Thank you for your service.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure. Let's see if we can't jump out of a plane sometime soon. Absolutely. All right. Take care. And thank you so much. All right. We'll see you. Hey, folks, the best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered, just leave it in the comments so you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from the bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley associate producer is Jeff Apple, executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunin.